Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. This is Andre speaking. I would just like to correct a few things that I said in this episode. The first one is that I mentioned that Federer won the final in 2008 at Wimbledon against Rafa Nadal, and as we all know, he did not win that match. He actually lost it in five sets, nine seven in the last and the fifth set, as I mentioned in the episode that I've made, especially about that match. And the second thing is that I've mentioned that this episode would have kind of come out the Friday, um, April 17th, which isn't true. Today is Saturday, um, April 18th, and the reason why is because I had to do a little bit of more work than I actually expected to do in this episode. But there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, the first one of the Wimbledon history. Hi everyone, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. A podcast about tennis in general, actualities, curiosities, history, and... Whatever I feel like talking about tennis in this podcast. Um, so I've already talked about um, when it was going on. I was talking about the weeks and things that were happening, like the Australian Open. And before we had a chance to hit the first Masters 1000 of the season, the coronavirus broke out. And now we have no tennis until at least, I would say, August. But even then, it's almost wishful thinking at that point. We're probably not going to have, not gonna have um, much tennis until probably September or even the whole season might be cancelled. We just got news uh, today that the Labor Cup got cancelled, which might make way for Roland Garros to have place in September as they have uh, announced earlier in this, early, earlier in March, I believe. But this episode is not about the actualities. This episode is actually about the history of Wimbledon, an episode that should have come out on Wednesday. However, uh, I did record the episode the first time but I just didn't think it was worth it and Wimbledon being the prestigious tournament that it is I think it deserves better so uh, I did a lot more research this time and I really did prepare myself way more than uh, I did on Wednesday so I feel like uh, even though I'm late I'd rather have a good episode about a great tournament than a crap episode and not do justice to what, I, what the history of Wimbledon um, represents to tennis in general. So, without further ado, uh, let's start with the Wimbledon history part one. As tennis originated in Britain, we have to start with its position in the world of the 1800s. At the time, the UK was the most powerful nation in the world having about 25% of the world's population, and trading was peaceful and successful across the seas because of the vastness of the empire, which had major impact in the spread of tennis around the world. Transportation and communication, which were basically the same back then, 
played a major role in the development and growth as, of Wimbledon, as we will see. Wimbledon was a growing but still a small suburb mm. near London and was not yet the tournament. Wimbledon is actually the name of the suburb. The club's grounds were founded near, a muddy, near muddy roads and fields, but the appeal and development of the suburb caused the sport to flourish as well. Croquet was still a really popular sport, but it was losing its appeal as the British high society was looking for a more energetic sport. Tennis became more attractive as it was equally fun to play for both men and women, and doubles and mixed doubles were possible, although these tournaments wouldn't be included in the championships until the early 1900s. A little bit of a fun fact is that the lawnmower was an important technology for tennis. Because of it, people were able to play outdoors on grass, and they moved from the tennis ancestors' royal tennis and rackets to slowly develop the sport we know today. Although it was called just lawn tennis back then because they only played outdoors on grass. The Old England Croquet Club, as it was known back then, was founded in the offices of the now oldest sports magazine in the world, The Field, in 1868, and they still did not, not even have a place to play when they founded it, only leasing up space in 1869, so a year later they just had the club but they couldn't even play anything. The name of the club was, was changed three times, in 1877 to hold the first tournament to All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club, in 1882 to All England Tennis Club, Lawn Tennis Club, I'm sorry, as tennis proved way more popular than croquet, as I said before, it was far more energetic and essentially anyone could play. And in 1899, it was the last change to the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, which is the name that remains today. The first grounds were by Nursery Lane, where it remained until 1982 as the tournament became too big for the area and too crowded, so residents were actually starting to get a little um, irritated about all the movement and people coming in. As we will see, Wimbledon, the suburb, was getting very popular through the years. John Walsh was a very important founder. He donated the, the pony roller to upkeep the grass and was chairman of the first meeting of the club. So the pony roller was actually to keep the grass to keep the grass for the croquet fields, not the tennis fields, as the tennis fields would only be established in, in 1875. John Walsh was a surgeon, and he later became a, a writer of sporting books. He was also chairman of the magazine The Field. The pony, that pony roller that he donated was essential to the creation of the tournament. It broke down, and they needed to raise funds to fix it. And then that's when the idea of the creation of a tournament um, came up. So they held, it, held a tournament to raise funds to fix the pony roller. And that's how in 1877, the first Wimbledon ever was held, gathering about 300 people to watch the final and a prize money of 13 guineas, about 2100 US dollars today. The current prize money is just under 3 million, just to give a point of comparison. Just two years later, more than 1,000 people came to watch the final, which was the Challenger um, final, which I'll explain later on. The Field, the magazine, was an important magazine for tennis, also having published, published the rules of lawn tennis for the first time to the public. And as we will see, lawn tennis has changed a lot since it was first established as a sport. The All England Tennis Club essentially created and managed tennis until the creation of the LTA in 1888, the sport was basically invented to fill in recreation time for the British high society. As I've mentioned a couple times before, 
Croquet was not as active and they were looking for something a little bit more um, energetic with more action to do with their, with their time. And probably the biggest founding father of Wimbledon and tennis itself was Henry Jones. He organized and was referee of the inaugural tournament along with Julian Marshall and Charles Heathcote. The trio has also established the 15-30 and 40 scorer that we have today and also the double serve. And they also ended up bre breaking the hourglass shape court in favor of the rectangular. So yeah, um, because of the influences of a sport called royal tennis and another called rackets, um, they kind of had to combine all of them together into one single tournament. Uh, not tournament, but a sport. And that one became tennis. Um, the 15, 30, and 40 rule, I believe, comes from the royal tennis score line. And it used to be 15, 30, and 45 as for the positions of the clock. That's how they counted the score of a game in uh, tennis. And yes, as weird as it is, the, ten the first tennis uh, courts, they were an hourglass-shaped court and not a rectangular uh, court. But that changed quite quickly over the course of about 20 years. So as I said, the initial courts had an hourglass shape and a net was 5 feet tall at the post and 3 feet and 3 inches at the center. As you can imagine, it was a saggy net. The last modification to court dimensions were made in 1882, and believe it or not, the, cor the courts remain to this day the same. As I look at the, the photos in the book that I used to uh, uh, prepare this podcast, this episode, and I will use to prepare the part two, um, the courts looked like they were taken, the pictures were taken yesterday, but it was more than 100 years ago, which is Honestly, quite impressive how quickly the sport developed and the uh, importance that Wimbledon had in um, shaping the sport that we love so much today. A few important players uh, during the first years of Wimbledon were uh, Spencer Gore, who was the first champion. But it wasn't really until the Renshaws, the twins, that the sport gained more traction. Uh, the twins, William and Ernest, were responsible for finally creating a unique style of lawn tennis, as he was known back then. So there were no hard courts or clay courts. He was only playing, played on, uh, on grass, and the sport was known as lawn tennis. William, the eldest by five minutes, had seven titles, uh, six of which in a row. So they, ha they had eight titles between them. As you can see, William was the most talented of all of them, and he actually won a couple finals against his brother. You can imagine how he probably felt. Already in 1880s, Wimbledon would gather more than 3,000 people, 3,500 people, which I believe is the capacity, was the capacity of the center court back in the day. So, um, first tournament was held in uh, 1877, and about a decade later, they would gather 3,500 people to the challenger round. Williams' record was only equaled by Pete Sampras and broken by Roger Federer a couple of years ago in the men's single side. So Pete Sampras went on to win seven titles, four in a row and then three in a row. And then Roger Federer came in to, write, to win five titles in a row and then he completed it with another three. Um, last one I believe he won in 2018 to finally break this record. Another very important player to Wimbledon was a woman, uh, as we were going to see many, many times throughout the history and the history of... Uh, and in, in this episode and in this podcast, as, um, as I mentioned, women were also, um, the sport became very popular because women were also able to play it and mixed doubles were a thing. So it's no surprise that um, we had many Wim uh, Wimbledon 
female champions and trendsetters who brought a lot to the game. So Charlotte Laridad, I must quote straight from the book because she was an exceptional athlete and a very talented person in general. So this is Charlotte Laridad, according to Wimbledon, the official uh, history by John Barrett. Never beaten at Wimbledon, Lottie decided to turn her considerable talents to other sports after her fifth win in 1893 and became a hockey international, earning two caps in 1899 and 1900. She also became a golf champion, winning the British Women's Championships at Troon in 1904. Furthermore, she was an accomplished singer, a member of the London Oriana Madrigal Society, a fine pianist, a first-class archer and skater, and a marvelous bridge player. Arguably, Lottie Dodds is still the greatest sporting all-rounder Britain has ever produced. So that's just a little bit of a piece of history about how important women were in the history of Wimbledon. Unfortunately, uh, it took long, as we know, for women to take a more meaningful place in society, but they were still showing they were always very capable. So it's very um, good to see that happening in the history of Wimbledon and to see that also... Um, recorded as part of the official history with such praise. Now, transport and communication, as already established, were super important for the sport and the tournament. Because of the railway connecting Wimbledon to London, it opened up ways to communicate and attract many fans to the championships, which, as we already know, was crucial to the success of the club and of the popularity of the sport. Although several other places in Britain and Ireland had singles, doubles, and mixed doubles, the championships were slow to adopt, and only in 1884 there was a singles tournament for the women, but doubles and mixed doubles took much longer. The prizes for the singles, the prizes for the lady singles winner and runner-up were a silver flower basket, and the prizes for the lady singles winner and runner-up were respectively a silver flower basket and a silver-backed hairbrush and mirror set for the runner-up. Henry Jones was also important in establishing the Ladies' Singles Championship, as he made the proposal that got accepted and refereed for two years before leaving office, just to make sure that the tournament was well under its weight. However, in the 1890s, with not much attraction to the ladies' game because of the place of women in society, as I already mentioned, and the departure of the Renshaw Twins, this caused the sport to struggle a little since it was not yet established in Britain's sports calendar, that is, in the people's minds, even though it was already growing. Plus, the royal family was not very interested in the sport yet, although they would come up and even deliver the trophy to the champions, as I believe they do it to this day, but I'm not entirely sure about that. I would have to check, and I'll actually mention this in the second part of uh, the series about the history of Wimbledon. So the club survived on other sporting attractions, such as the rifle meetings that they would hold, uh, they would, they would be held in the uh, Wimbledon, Wimbledon grounds of the day. And now we've reached the dawn of the new century, with great developments in technology, such as the telegraph, contributed to the development of society in general. Many things were also happening in the beginning of the century overall in history, with names like Picasso producing the biggest cultural works. That's just how to show that Wimbledon was happening and growing in a very rich historical context. At Wimbledon, the roads were now mostly paved, and later they installed a tram service. There was a rapid growth of the championships, as it is known, with tickets selling almost double the amount the previous year. So about in the early 1900s until 1910s, they were growing exponentially. And as I mentioned, the LTA was founded in 1888, but with the growth of the club, 
some tensions arose in the early 1900s. Some regarded the club as trying to run and own tennis in Britain. The LTA wanted to take control of the club and the championships, but the club officials managed to save the championships from the LTA rule, as they rightfully claimed that they were essentially the creators of the sport as we know it. The whole saga would not really end until 1966, just before the open era start. So pretty much greed um, led a lot of people inside of the LTA to want to completely take over the championships from the hands of uh, the All England Club. And thankfully, they have managed to save that. And we'll see a little bit more about that later because they had plenty of other meetings over the years until the day that I mentioned in 1966 when they finally reached a um, agreement that led to um, harmonious uh, relationships between the two nowadays. Now, a couple of players that were, players that were really important in the uh, dawn of that century with a total of nine singles titles from 1897 to 1906 were the Doherty brothers, another pair of twins, who were finally bringing more traction to the game after this limp in the 1890s, after the Renshaw twins went out and the ladies weren't necessarily bringing much of a, of a viewership. Sadly, uh, women's position in society was uh, still poor and that meant that their achievements went essentially unnoticed as per the words of the book itself. Dorothy Douglas, for example, was also important to restore the game's popularity and she won the title seven times in 11 years from 1903 to 1911, a feat that is only matched only by two other women, Helen Wills Moody in the 1930s, who we'll see later, and Martina Navratilova in the 70s, who we'll see in another episode. The nine titles by, by Martina Navratilova are still unmatched on the grass. So Roger Federer has eight in the men's side, but Navratilova holds the biggest record for a number of Wimbledon titles. In 1905, the first overseas, champ overseas champion was also a woman, May Sutton from the USA, who won the title again, also in 1907. For the British male players, Algor represented the end of an era. He was the oldest winner at 41 in 1909, and also the last man from Britain to win until Fred Perry took the title from 1934 to 1936. And as we know, after Fred Perry, only Andy Murray has taken the title since, in 2013. The beginning of the end of Britain's domination of the championships was marked by the first overseas champion, Norman Brooks from Australia in 1907. That year, all three titles contested went to overseas champion. As I mentioned, they only had uh, men's singles, uh, lady singles, and men's doubles. The other mixed doubles and uh, ladies doubles took a little bit of a while to come. Anthony Wilding, a New Zealander, was a four-time champion between 1910 and 1913, and unfortunately, he was killed serving in the war in 1915. No surprise to anyone, there were no championships during the war years from 1915 to 1918, resuming only in 1919. And uh, you can see an in memoriam for Anthony Wilding at the Wimbledon History Museum, obviously in the grounds of Wimbledon. And a fun fact about those times is that Slazinger, the official ball supplier of the championships, is the official supplier since 1902, and that is thought to be the longest commercial association between a major event and an official supplier in the whole world of sports. And by the way, uh, the players chose Slazinger at that time, so they would vote for the supplier of the balls at that time. And then 
We've reached 1914 and until 1918, which are the war times. As I mentioned, there was no um, no tennis being played, although the grounds were still being used for um, farming and other things as well. After the war, we enter a period of great progress in the championships as it becomes more and more international, which is called, as per the book, the interwar boom, and changes happening from in society are also related to a few great champions at the club. So first is the changing role of women in society, who progressively started gaining more uh, traction and more popularity in the game, as they completely deserve it. Women started to gain recognition in society due to many changes in the way of thinking and attitudes of the people, partly because of the war years. This meant also a more prominent role of women in sports and, of course, in Wimbledon history. Women started to wear more relaxed clothing in general, and at Wimbledon it was no exception. From the heavy attire worn in previous years, such as long dresses and stockings, women started to wear clothes uh, closer to a proper sports attire, but not exactly as we see today, although the length of the skirts started to shorten a bit. Susan Langlant was one of the biggest role models and a leader in the movement, being not only a great champion, one of the greatest of all time and at Wimbledon, but also an important figure in women liberalization movements. Her confident attitude helped her shape a generation and win six titles, five of them in a row. She was also the last person to hit a ball in the old grounds of the club in 1921 as they moved to a bigger area, Church Road, the current location. The first woman not to wear stockings on center court was Mrs. Joan Lissett, setting a trend that would finally become universal. On the men's side, though, fashion moves slowly, as we all know. The first man to wear shorts on center court was Bunny Austin, Joan Lissett's brother, the last man to reach the final at Wimbledon in 1938. Unfortunately, he reached the final twice, but he ran into very, very talented players who uh, marked their generations as well, about whom I will speak shortly. And he was the first to, to reach the final in 1938, just before Andy Murray did in 2012, so we took more than 80 years. But the last player to regularly wear long flannels was Ivan Petra in 1946, and there was still an appearance of the long trousers in 1970, so essentially it took 30 years for the trousers to just completely disappear. And as I mentioned, they had moved to a new place. And so how did this happen? Um, the fact is, Wimbledon had become too big to where it was before. Too many people were coming to watch and the crowds were becoming unmanageable as the suburb was becoming more populated. So the crowds were a little too much for the residents. These factors combined, they moved to a new land which cost 140,000 pounds. So remember how the first prize was 13 guineas and the funds were to repair the pony roller for the upkeeping of the croquet fields. Needless to say that at that point, now they had a motorized roller, right? The LTA, while supporting the idea, still had interest in trying to control the club's tournaments, now five, gentlemen's and ladies' singles and doubles, and mixed doubles, all of which went overseas for the first time in the same year in 1919, so right after the war. The new area at Church Road was opened by King George V, with a center court capacity of 13,500, in 1922, the current location of the Grand Slam and still the current center court, as I mentioned earlier. That year, the Challenger Round was also abolished. And now, what was the Challenger Round? The Challenger Round was the true final of the tournament, as the defending champion would await the all-comers singles final uh, champion, the tournament to decide who would play the defending champion. 
In other words, to defend your title, you only needed to play one match instead of going through the whole draw again. So there were a lot of people who were in a draw, and the winner of that draw would play the defending champion, who just played that one match. And in 1922, that uh, practice was abolished, and ever since, uh, we have not had a challenger round, which I think is fair. A little bit of a fun fact again. That year, it rained every day, or almost every day, and the tournament finished in the third Wednesday. So a Grand Slam is held in two weeks and normally finishes on the second Sunday. It ended up happening to finish on the third Wednesday of the tournament. And that was the worst rain, rain delay in the history of the championships. Now they have roofs, so that makes things way better. It probably made everyone really, really nervous, as the new center court was far bigger than the old one, and there was a fear that it would just become a white elephant. And uh, yeah, luckily the investment and risk paid off, and Wimbledon is still the most prestigious tennis tournament today. And I don't really think that those, this will really change in the future. And continuing with the saga between the LTA and the club, Herbert Moncton was the most vocal representative of the LTA about trying to get control over the championships and the club. In 1933, they reached an agreement that would give 50% of the grounds and control all the finances to the LTA, but the club would still run the championships. They had to meet again several times in 1923, uh, 1933, and 1934. So the 1933 one was the one that they reached that agreement, but they hadn't been meeting um, since the 1920s. And they had to meet again in 1966. And the saga finally ended with the LTA being able to run the sport in Britain, while the club remained with the right to run the championships. And I think everybody is happy now. And I hope they remain happy because the club is doing really well and championships are amazing. Except for the um, predominantly white rule, which is uh, a little controversial, I guess. Some of the most important players who marked that time were William Tilden, who was the first American to win the title. However, he was constantly beaten by one of the four musketeers. Four Frenchmen who dominated the championships from for six years, doing 1924 to 1929. Will and Tilden haven't been able to finally overcome that in uh, 1930, when he beat Henri Cochet, one of the four musketeers, and went on to win for just the second time. And now, just a little bit more about the four musketeers before I move on to um, a little bit more information on Suzanne Langlan. Uh, one of the greatest champions of Wimbledon, whose name is now immortalized on the second biggest court at the um, second biggest arena in um, Roland Garros. So, these are the French Musketeers. The era of the French Musketeers. The following year, 1924, marked by the beginning of an extraordinary run of French ascendancy that coincided with the introduction of a modified form of seating. So Wimbledon has its own um, different seating based on uh, performance on grass and performance on the championships. It was decided that nations could nominate up to four players who would be drawn in separate quarters. This was of singular benefit to René Lacoste, Henri Cochet, Jean Borotra, and Jacques Toto Brugnon, the doubles expert among the four musketeers, as this talented quarter inevitably became known. Unfortunately, uh, Jacques Brugnon did not manage to win a single um, singles titles, but um, the, the first three, René Lacoste, Henri Cochet, and Jean Brotra, they uh, traded titles the, between 1924 to 1929, each of them winning two. 
piece of curiosity, as you've been probably wondering, yes, uh, René Lacoste is the, uh, the founder of the brand Lacoste. As um, he started selling polos, as it was essentially the attire that he would wear during his matches at the championships. Now moving on to Suzanne Langlan. Here's why she was regarded as one of the best players of all time, probably one of the greatest champions of Wimbledon, probably the greatest champion of Wimbledon. Even though she doesn't hold the same amount of titles that Martina Vartilova holds, it's because uh, tennis was a little bit different back then. It was the Grand Slams, as we know them today, they were reserved only for amateur players. In the open era, that's when professionals were allowed to compete. So Suzanne Langlan had won 15 titles in total and lost only three matches, none of them in singles. She did retire twice, though. However, that doesn't really count over to her um, actual losses. And so, yeah. Never a player dominated more than her, and controversies were fortunately part of her, hist her story, leading her to miss a match due to miscommunication and a rumor that the queen herself, Queen Mary at the time, was very displeased that she was at the stands to watch the match, and she particularly once wanted to watch Suzanne Langlan pay play herself. Um, however, this was denied by the Buckingham Palace um, since then, and I believe that's probably the truth. Probably the media was just trying to make some sensationalist story. Suzanne Langlan went on to become a professional in 1925, and never again she hit a ball at Wimbledon. And sadly, she died in 1938, a victim of leukemia, aged only 39. Helen Wills, a powerful American, won eight titles and was the most decorated champion until Martina Navratilova came about. She had eight titles spanning across 11 years, and on route to all of her victories, she only dropped four sets, and that is a mark of how invincible she was considered at that time. She was defeated by Kathleen Godfrey, known as Kitty, an athletic British player, in the final in 1924 after leading 5-1 in the second set, leading by one set to love. As we know, um, the women's uh, championship at Wimbledon is only a best of three sets, and the men's championship has always been a best of five. And Wills Moody was just 18 at the time only, but she already had wins in Forest Hills, where the US Open was held at that time. And Kitty herself won the title twice in 1924 and 1926. Another very important player of the time was a rival of Helen Wills, another American called Helen Jacobs, although Wills dominated the rivalry, winning every one of the four finals they played against each other at Wimbledon. Jacobs would finally win the title in 1936, but only beat Wills once in 11 meetings, a retirement from Wills Moody. She did hold a match point in the Wimbledon though, but played a bad volley and lost the point, and eventually the match. That's always an incredibly tense moment, the last point to win a Grand Slam, especially against one of the greatest. She did went on to win the US Open four years in a row though, so that kind of makes up for it. Another great player who was very important for British history in tennis was Fred Perry, who had won the title in 1934 the first time a male British player had done so since Al Gore in 1909. He was from the lower classes, though, a different upbringing from the earlier champions, so that caused him to be treated differently, and although long-awaited, his wins were not exactly what the fans, what the fans expected. Here's a little bit of um, how the treatment went for him, as I'm going to quote straight from the book again. This is John Barrett from Wimbledon, The Official History. 
At last, British prayers had been answered. And in a refreshingly unexpected way, Forfait was not from the same social background as the members of the tennis establishment. The son of a labor MP and born in Stockport, Fred recalled the hidden barriers that were raised by many of the officials with whom he came into contact as he climbed determinedly from re relative obscurity to international fame via, via the World Table Tennis Championships, where he first developed his match-winning match skills. He told how in 1934 the member's tie, awarded by a tradition to the champion each year, Uh, in parentheses, the easy way to achieve membership of all Eng of the All England Club. It's a very, very, very exclusive club. If you look up online, you're going to see how um, exclusive it is and how difficult it is to become a member of this club. So that tie was not presented to him in the, in the usual way, but was left draped over the bench in the changing room near his clothes following his first victory. It was a slight Perry would never forget. Still, as I said, he won three titles in a row from 1934 to 1936, and it was the first time that a man did it since the abolition of the Challenger Round, a feat that was only repeated 42 years later, later in the Open Era already by Bjorn Borg, one of, Bjorn Borg, one of my favorite tennis players of all time, and who extended the record to five in a row. So Borg, Bjorn Borg was the first man um, after the Open Era who won five titles in a row, and I believe the only one with uh, Roger Federer. I don't exactly remember when did Borg win it, but it was in the 80s, and Roger Federer's record is from 2003 to 2007. In 2008, I have an episode about this, he won one of the most intense and one of the greatest matches at Wimbledon, a final against Rafael Nadal, after beating him two years in a row in 2006 and 2007. A big American player from that time as well that I cannot leave this podcast without mentioning is Don Budge. He is one of the greatest champions of all time at Wimbledon and probably in tennis in general, um, winning all titles, all three titles in 1937 and 1938. And he was the first one to complete the Grand Slam in 1938. So the Grand Slam is when a player manages to win all of the Grand Slam titles in the same year. So... Only one male player has been able to do that, which who's that player being Rod Laver, whom I will be talking about in the episode about the Open Era. In that year, 1938, he was also the first of four men not to drop a set to win the tournament, with only Bjorn Borg having done so in the Open Era. Again, um, Bjorn Borg is one of my favorite players of all time. I think he is probably the best player who has ever lived. The only reason why he didn't achieve as more, more as more than what he actually did is because he ended up retiring too early, in my humble opinion. Also, remember that Borg was the he held the record for most French Open wins at six. Um, however, Nadal did break that, and now he's at 12, so he has twice as many. The last player that I want to mention before I close is Alice Marble. Alice Marble started using the serving volley technique and that started a trend when women started coming off of the baseline and actually going to the front to attack and use volleys, which is a technique that Martina Navratilova used in all of her, all of her wins at Wimbledon. She is considered one of the greatest champions ever and 
she have she didn't lose almost any matches in her short-lived career, which ended unfortunately by by a broken leg. Her only title at Wimbledon was in 1939, a year before the war, and she managed to win all of the three titles: the singles, the doubles, and the mixed doubles. She ended up becoming a professional during the war, and she never competed at the championships again. And that is the period all the way from the beginning of Wimbledon to the beginning of the Second World War. And I'm going to leave the, sec leave the Second World War period in which things actually ended up happening at Wimbledon uh, until the open era for the next Wednesday when I will release a podcast, hopefully it's going to be on Wednesday. And I know I said I was going to release only two, the part one and two, the pre-open era and post-open era, but I believe that I'm going to, that it's necessary to dedicate one single episode. It's probably going to be shorter as well just about this period because it was a very, very important moment from the switch to the amateur era to the open era. As I mentioned before, the amateur players were the only ones to compete at the Grand Slams. And only after the open era is that the uh, professionals had, um, been, had, had been offered the opportunity to join and play the championships. So I want to make an episode in particular just for that. So... That was it for the origins of Wimbledon up until the Second World War, as I mentioned. And um, I hope to see you next Wednesday. And I actually do hope to see to see you next Wednesday because it might not be Wednesday as this episode is only being um, released on the Friday. But yeah, thanks for listening. I really did work really hard on this um, on this podcast. And trust me, that is just way too many things to talk about Wimbledon. This is just scratching the surface of the origins of this wonderful tournament, of, this, of the history of this wonderful tournament. And it's really, really difficult to separate, especially in the beginning, from the history of tennis to the history of Wimbledon. So I might dedicate another episode just to talk a little bit about the history of tennis itself. So um, yeah, stay tuned and um, have a great weekend. Bye-bye.